0: So that's Genesis chapter 12. The Lord had said to Abram, go from your country, your people and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So Abram went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he set out from Haran. He took his wife Sarai, his nephew Lot, all the possessions they had accumulated, and the people they had acquired in Haran. And they set out for the land of Canaan, and they arrived there. Abram travelled through the land as far as the site of the great tree of Morah at Shechem. At that time the Canaanites were in the land. The Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built an altar there to the Lord, who had appeared to him. From there he went on toward the hills east of Bethel, and pitched his tent, with Bethel on the west. And Ai on the east. There he built an altar to the Lord and called on the name of the Lord. Then Abram set out and continued toward the Negev. We'll continue reading from Genesis chapter 15, from verse 1. After this, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision Do not be afraid, Abram, I am your shield. Your very great reward. But Abram said, Sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless and the one who will inherit my estate is Eliezer of Damascus? And Abram said, You have given me no children, so a servant in my household will be my heir. Then the word of the Lord came to him. This man will not be your heir, but a son who is your own flesh and blood, will be your heir. He took him outside and said, Look up at the sky and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. Abram believed the Lord, and he credited it to him as righteousness. He also said to him, I am the Lord, who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans, to give you this land to take possession of it. But Abram said, Sovereign Lord, how can I know that I will gain possession of it? So the Lord said to him, Bring me a heifer, a goat, and a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. Abram brought all these to him, cut them in two, and arranged the halves opposite each other. The birds, however, he did not cut in half. Then birds of prey came down on the carcasses, but Abram drove them away. As the sun was setting, Abram fell into a deep sleep, and a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. Then the Lord said to him, Know for certain that for four hundred years your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and that they will be enslaved and mistreated there. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, and afterward they will come out with great possessions. You, however, will go to your ancestors in peace and be buried at a good old age. In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here, for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. When the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking firepot with a blazing torch appeared, and passed between the pizzas. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram and said, To your descendants I give this land, from the Wadi of Egypt to the great river, the Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, Kenizzites, Kadmonites, Hittites, Perizzites, Rephaites, Amorites, Canaanites, Girgashites, and Jebusites. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Thanks be to God. Did you hear that? Abraham was fully persuaded, fully persuaded that God had power to do what he had promised. Love that verse. Abraham was fully convinced, was fully persuaded that what God had promised, God would do. God could do the impossible uh, D.L. Moody says this, God never made a promise that was too good to be true. God never made a promise that was too good to be true. And I hope you know, friends, that our God has made you so many promises in his word. If you know your Bibles, there's, there's over 3,000 promises of God. Let me be clear, God, God has not promised you you know, blue skies and an easy life. God never promised you perfect health and abundant wealth and rich relationships. God has never promised you peace without pain or some without the rain. God doesn't promise you all that stuff. But here's just a few things, just a few things that God has promised you. If you're here tonight as a believer in Jesus Christ, here are some of the things that God has promised you. He has promised you salvation, yes? He has promised you that everybody who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's the promise of God. If you're trusting in Jesus, you have full salvation. He's promised you all these spiritual blessings in Christ. Ephesians chapter 1, that you are chosen, adopted, loved, restored, redeemed. He's promised you his Holy Spirit. He has promised you that if you put your trust in Christ, the Spirit of God dwells in you. The Spirit of truth, the Spirit of wisdom, the Spirit who guides and directs and gifts and assures. He's promised you that. He has promised you sanctification. 2 Corinthians 3, that that we are being transformed more and more into the likeness of Christ. So he's promised you salvation, sanctification, his spirit, spiritual blessings. He's promised you strength. His word says that that he is your strength and your refuge. When when you are weak, he is strong. He's promised you that. He's promised you his presence. I love this truth. Isaiah 41, fear not, for I am with you. Jesus said, I will not leave you. I will not forsake you. There's nothing that happens in your life that I'm not there right alongside you. He's promised you his presence. He's promised you protection. Exodus 14, that the Lord will fight for you. He will not tempt you beyond which you can bear. He's promised you provision Philippians 4 that God will supply all your needs not your wants but your needs according to his riches in Christ he's promised you his peace a a peace that passes understanding he's promised you his his comfort 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 my people Or, or Psalm 23 the Lord is my shepherd and his rod and his staff they comfort me he's promised you completion that he who began a good work will complete it he will hold you he will take you to glory he's promised you his love that nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus Romans chapter 8 that's just a few of God's promises to you salvation the spirit sanctification spiritual blessings strength presence protection provision peace comfort completion love isn't that extraordinary, all these amazing promises that God has made to you if you're a Christian? And God never made a promise that it was too good to be true. And so our question tonight is, what do you do with God's promises? What does God expect you to do with all these incredible promises that He's made you? Hes supposed to just to know them up here? Maybe underline them in your Bible or circle them. Pop down to Kurong and buy a nice picture or painting with a Bible verse or promise on. And put it on your fridge and look at it regularly. Is that it? Here's what God asks you to do with his promises. Here's our big idea for today. Standing in the promises of God or standing on the promises of God. The word standing means that you, you don't just believe them but you live them. You are fully persuaded of them, that you conduct your everyday life being persuaded that God will not fail you, and all those promises are true for you, and that changes the way that you live. There's a story of a, of a man who was traveling, and he, he came to the Mississippi River, an old story. and those days, there were no bridges over the river, and the only way across the river was to swim or to take a boat. But on this particular day, the the river was completely frozen over, covered in ice. But the man wasn't sure whether the ice was thick enough to hold his weight. So he refused to stand on the ice. And he got down on his hands and knees and he's crawling and creeping over the ice in fear and uncertainty and always questioning, will this hold him, will this hold him? And suddenly he hears this noise and he sees this, this horse and cart, that shows you how, how old the story is, this horse and cart with excess baggage loaded up to the hilt. And the driver of this horse and cart comes straight up to the river and crosses straight over the river, no, no anxiety, no fear, no uncertainty, fully persuaded that the ice was thick enough to take all that weight. Now that is standing on the promises of God. That you don't live each day creeping and crawling and uncertain. Will God do what he said he's going to do? Will God fail me? But you are certain and secure and fully persuaded that every one of God's promises are true for you. That's what we're looking at today, standing in these promises. I kind of say, if you live in your Christian life on your hands and knees, if you're living each day in fear, in anxiety, with insecurities about whether God is going to come through, you're missing out. Your Christian life is exhausting, it's a bit sad, because God wants you to live this life where He's certain and sure, fully persuaded that our God will keep every one of his promises. So tonight we're going to meet a man called Abraham. Open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 12. We're going to spend time in Genesis 12 and 15 tonight. And God zeroes it in one man who did stand firm in God's promise. His name was Abraham. The name Abraham, it means exalted father. Exalted father. And it was, it was quite an unfortunate name because Abraham had no children. He was childless. <laughs> Can you imagine that embarrassment where you meet a new person? Hi, what's your name? My name's Abraham. That's a beautiful name, Exalted Father. Oh, how many kids do you have? Oh, none. And so, Abraham had an unfortunate name, and he came from a messed up family. We learn from chapter 11 that he had a difficult childhood. His younger brother, Haran, died when he was young, and He came from a place called Ur in southern Iraq. It was a great commercial idol-worshipping city. And so God singles out this messed up man with a family tragedy from a messed up city with lots of baggage. And he calls him, verse 1, The Lord said to Abraham, Go, leave your family, leave your country, leave your people, leave your father's household. Just get up and leave everything familiar with you. Get up and go, just trust me got two points tonight. The first is longer. Number one, God gives his promises. God gives his promises. I hope you know that that you don't make promises to God, but God makes promises to you. Please don't live your life making all these promises to God. Just believe in the promises that God has made to you. Five times in verses two and three, we see two words which could be life-transforming for you. God says, I will, I will. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great. I will bless you. I will, I will, I will. He says, Abraham, I understand you're a pagan idolater who's had family tragedy and you can't have kids, but I will, I will, I will, I will do this for you. Not you will, but I will. And that is the foundation of faith, isn't it? Not what we do for God, but what God has done for us. Not what we promise to do for God, but what God has promised to do for us. I hope you realize that the Christian life is less about what you promise to do for God and more about what God has promised to do for you. Now God gives Abraham four extraordinary promises. Verse 1, he promises a land. He says, go to the land I will show you. This extraordinary vast land, the promised land It's 300 square miles in, in, in an area. Modern-day Israel and Lebanon and Jordan and much of Syria. But, but notice in verse 1 that Abraham does not know where he's going. God doesn't tell him the name of the land at this point. There's no GPSs in those days. He's just told just to go to the land that I will show you. It's like when an Uber driver turns up and says, where do you want to go? And you say, oh, I don't really know. God will tell me where to go. And I was thinking this week, like, life can be like that. Often God says, come on, I'm going to take on a journey. I'm not going to show you the destination, but just come with me and just trust me. So God promised a land and a nation, verse 2, I will make you into a great nation. Now God is either sadistic, he's either got a massive sense of humor, or he's going to keep his promise. It is crazy because he takes a 75-year-old man who's married to a woman who can't have children. And he promises a nation will come from this one man, a great nation from a man who can't have one child. Seemed impossible. But you know what happened? You know that he did have a child called Isaac, and Isaac had Jacob, and Jacob had Joseph, etc. Et and I love that because God delights in coming through with the seemingly impossible. So, God promised a, 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 a land, a nation, a, a name. Verse 2 I will make your name great. And God did that because all three major religions Judaism, Islam, and Christianity all traced their spiritual heritage back to the one man Abraham. A land, a nation, a name, and blessing. Verse 2 I will bless you, Abraham. Not blessed with an easy life, but bless you with my. Presence, my provision, my protection, my peace. At end of verse 3, all peoples on earth will be blessed through you, Abraham. Because from Abraham's line is going to come a man called Jesus, who was God's chosen Messiah. And all people on earth will be blessed through Jesus, who came from the line of Abraham. So these are God's promises in Genesis 12, a land, a nation, a name, a blessing, and they're big promises, outrageous promises, and at times seemingly impossible promises. <laughs> Let's be honest, sometimes standing on God's promises and believing God's word, it does seem a bit crazy. Sometimes following God where he wants you to go seems crazy. You you imagine, Noah, go build an ark. That sounded ridiculous. Joshua, walk around Jericho seven times. That seems ridiculous. Peter, leave your fishing business and follow me. That seems crazy. And sometimes God wants us to just take him at his word and believe that he can do what he's promised to do. Verse 4, so Abraham went. God said, go, and Abraham went. Or did he? I think Genesis 12 is an interesting chapter. I'm not persuaded that in Genesis 12 that Abraham actually took God at his word. I want to look at three wrong responses. A wrong response is partial trust or partial obedience. Because standing on the promises of God can never be half-hearted. It's not half in, half out. It's not hedging your bet. He wants you to fully trust and fully surrender. And I don't think Abraham does it. Look at it with me. So Abraham went, verse 4. So he did leave his country, tick. But he didn't leave his family. Just look back to chapter 11, verse 31. Terah, Abraham's father, took his son Abraham, his grandson Lot, son of his dead son Haran, his daughter-in-law Sarai, the wife of his son Abraham, and together they set out from Ur to go to Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. So he didn't leave his family, his father's household. He, he took his dad with him. He took Lot with him, his nephew, and Lot would not be a blessing. He'd be troubled all the way. And Abraham did not go all the way to the promised land straight away. He went to a place called Haran and lived there for 15 years. And verse 5 tells us he got, had possessions and, and accumulated people there. So Abraham is not standing fully on the promises of God. He's not putting all his weight on the ice at this point. He's partially doing it, hedging his bets. And I wonder whether that's some of us here tonight. Easy to say God is my strength and refuge, but if we're honest, we subtly rely on our strength. Easy to say God is my comfort, but we still run to all this other stuff for comfort, friends, family, fitness, finance, alcohol. God wants you to stand, which means full obedience, not partial. So not partial, not panicking. You can't stand on the promise of God and live in fear. Flick over to chapter 15. After this, the word of the Lord came to Abraham in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abraham. I am your shield. I am your very great reward. This this is the first do not be afraid of the whole Bible. He's saying, don't fear, Abraham, because faith and fear cannot coexist. You can't stand on the promises of God if you live in fear. So why is Abraham afraid? It could be that he's just had a vision of God, verse 1, and whenever God appears in a vision, people are often filled with fear. But I think it's because back in chapter 14, Abraham has just defeated this massive army And now he's living what I call the what-ifs. What What if these people retaliate? What if they regroup? What if they return? What if they revenge? That's what fear does. You you live in the what-ifs. You know, the the 40% of the things that you are fearful of never actually happen. But fear is this destructive emotion that stops you really taking God at his words. And, and, And you know that's true. You say to God things like, God, yeah, thanks for my salvation and my sanctification and for your spirit. But but what if my health fails? What if I go bankrupt? What if I'm all alone? And we focus on on the stuff that might happen that God has not promised us, rather than focus on the things that God has promised us. God says, verse 1, I am your shield. I am your protector, I will care for you, I will carry you, and I am your reward. So stop looking for earthly rewards like popularity, riches, and looks, and see God himself as your greatest reward. So, not panicking, not partial obedience, and no perplexity, that's a wrong response. Standing on the promise doesn't mean that you have to know all the answers. I love fifteen verse two. Abraham says, "God, sovereign God." So he, he claims to believe that God is in control of all things, sovereign Lord. He says, "What can you give me since I remain childless? And the one who will inherit my estate is Eliezer of Damascus." Abram said, "You give me no children, God. So a servant in my house will be my heir." He's saying, "God, you have promised for me will come a nation." But to be a nation, you need to have a child. And I have no children. It's almost like Abraham saying, God, God, it's great that you're my shield. Thank you for that, God. But actually, I want a child. God, it's great you're my reward, but you promised me a child. And the clock's ticking. I was 75 then. I'm 85 now. And the only heir in my household is my servant Eliezer, God, it's great that you prosper me materially. I have a household slave, I have wealth, but you know what? I want that child that you have promised me. Do you ever find talking to God like that? Sometimes God's promises sound amazing, they sound wonderful, but sometimes they sound like empty, pious platitudes. God's provision, God's protection, God's peace, God's comfort, they sound great, but what about reality? In chapter 17, Abraham says to God, God, you said, you told me, God, that you were going to give me a child, and now I'm 99 years old, and my wife is 90, and we've been waiting for 25 years. And God says, and what's the problem with that? Do you think I can't do what I said I'm going to do? Nothing's impossible with God. God. Do you believe that nothing is impossible with God? Here's a moment of confession. I shared this last week as well. I have to admit, I I find it easy to quote promises and much harder to live by them. I shared last week that two weeks ago, I was meeting with a member of church, just a pastoral visit and struggling with something and and, and she said, oh, that's impossible. I said, no, no, nothing is impossible with God. Nothing is impossible with God. And she texted me to say, thank you for that encouragement. I, I do believe that. The very next day, the very next day, Rach and I received a phone call which was really quite painful to hear, some news we didn't want to hear, unexpected news that impacted us and our family. And I said to Rach, well, that's it. God's closed the door. And my darling wife said to me, oh, Paul, no, nothing is impossible with God. And to be honest, I wanted to say, be quiet, shut up. (laughs) And the verse I just quoted the day before, I was now being forced to live by. Did I really believe it? Would I live by it? And that's difficult, isn't it? It's painful sometimes. But she was right. Our God can do the impossible. So God gives these promises and he doesn't want partial obedience or panic or perplexion. He wants us to stand firm and believe. He says in verse 4, the word of the Lord came to Abraham, this man Eliezer, your household servant, he will not be your heir, but a son, a child, who is your own flesh and blood. So he clarifies that this this child, this this son is going to come from Abraham and Sarah. He will be your heir. So God doesn't say to Abraham, how many times do I have to tell you, Abraham? And he doesn't say, okay, Abraham, let me explain to you why it's taking me so long to keep my promises. God doesn't say, this is what I've been doing behind the scenes, Abraham. This is the reason why you're waiting for so long. God doesn't do that. And I know that we would love God to do that. We'd love God to tell us exactly what he is doing and all the twists and turns, but he doesn't do that. And I think that's a good thing because we don't stand on explanations, we stand on promises. It's like when you go to the doctors and you've got this piercing pain in your, in your gut and what you don't want is an explanation as to how that pain might have started and what blood vessels are, are being erupted at this moment. You want the doctor just to say, this is what is wrong and I can guarantee in two days time you'll feel much, much better. That's what you want to promise. And God affirms his promise in verse 4. This man is not your heir. You will have a child. I'll keep my promise, he says. And verse 5, he took Abraham outside and said, look up at the sky. Look at the stars. Count the stars, the billions of stars. That's how many children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren are going to come from your name. And I love that. It's like the stars are God's signature to Abraham that he will keep his promise. So here's what I do when I'm struggling to really believe God's promises. I wander down to Balmoral Beach or Freshwater Beach and I grab a bunch of sand because that promise that the, the, the descendants of Abraham will be as numerous as the sands on the seashore. So that finds me great comfort. Or well, I look at the stars and say, well, God did it to Abraham. He could do it for me. I see a rainbow and I say, God keeps his promises. So the promise is not down with God. It's down to us remembering and believing and And fifteen verse six is the key verse, because Abraham is no longer partially believing but fully believing fifteen verse six, Abraham believed the Lord. look at that verse. it's not believed in the Lord, it's believed the Lord because it's perfectly possible to believe in the Lord but not really believe the Lord. He believed the Lord, he trusted the Lord he was fully persuaded that God could do this. And God credited to him as righteousness. Abraham had faith. Trust. He lent his whole weight on God. Hebrews 11 unpacks that for us on the screen. By faith, by trust, by standing in the promises, Abraham, when called to go to a place he would later receive as his inheritance, obeyed and went, even though he didn't know where he was going. By faith or by trust he made his home in the promised land like a stranger in a foreign country. He lived in tents as is Isaac and Jacob who were heirs with him of the same promise. For Abraham was looking forward to the city with foundations whose architect and builder is God, the one who makes the promises. By faith, verse 11, even Sarah, who was past childbearing age, was enabled to bear children because she considered God faithful who had made the promise. And so, from this one man, Abraham, and he as good as dead, came descendants as numerous as stars in the sky. I love Abraham's story because God keeps asking him to do crazy things. God says, I'm going to send you out. And then Abraham says, Where? He says, I'm not going to tell you, just go. I'll give you a land. Where? I'm not going to tell you, just do it. I'll give you a child. How? Not going to tell you. Just do It's this model of faith, the father of faith, who takes God at his word. In verse 7, God says, I am the Lord. Why why does God feel the need to to introduce himself? I think it's like that that parent with a child. He's saying, Abraham, look in my eyes. I am the Lord. I want you to know who I am and what I am able to do. I do love you and I will do it. But Abraham says, verse 8, Sovereign Lord, how can I know? How can I know? And God doesn't say, how dare you, Abraham? How dare you doubt? Because Abraham just wants confirmation or clarification. And that's what we really want, is it confirmation or clarification, a guarantee. And that's our second point, and more briefly, God guarantees his promises. God not only gives promises, but he guarantees them for us. Verse 9 is a really bizarre verse. The Lord said to Abraham, Bring me a heifer, a goat, and a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. Abraham brought all these to him, cut them in two, and arranged the halves opposite each other. What is going on? Friends, this is how contracts were made in those days. So for us today, if we make a contract, with another person, you might just shake your hand and say, no, I'm going to keep my side of the bargain. Except we don't because we're lower North Shore. So we hire lawyers and lawyers write an agreement or a contract and you sign the agreement, you sign the contract, So I'm committed to this. I did a great wedding here on Friday for Robin and Noah and in every wedding they, they stand, the couple stand there and they make verbal promises. You know, I will love you in sickness and in health, for richer, for poorer, for better, for worse. But verbal contracts are easy to say, aren't they? And so in every wedding, it's not just the verbal agreement, but you have a written agreement. And so they sign, they sign a a certificate, a legal certificate. The bride signs, the groom signs, two witnesses signs, and I sign... Because the signed contract is basically saying, if I break my side of the bargain, there's going to be consequences. That's how we do contracts today. In biblical times, there were no signed contracts. They enacted the contract. And that's what's happening here in verse 9. They take two animals and they, they cut the animals in half because blood is shed because this is a solemn oath, a solemn agreement and they they put one half on one side and one half on the other side and they create an aisle like we've got tonight. And both parties who are making the contract walk between the animals, walk down the aisle and they recite, if I break my side of the bargain, may I be cut off. If I do the wrong thing in this contract, may I suffer like these animals have suffered. That's what happened in biblical times. And so Abraham is prepared here to make a contract with God. And then he waits. And he waits. Verse 11, the birds come down because they're waiting a long time. Verse 12, the sun was setting. Abraham fell into a deep sleep, just like Adam in Genesis chapter 2. And a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. Not just physical darkness, but spiritual darkness because he's waiting for God, he's waiting for God, he's waiting for God, he's waiting for God to turn up. I was thinking this week, we often wait for God. We, we we, in our own mind think, this would be the perfect time for God to provide. This would be the perfect place for God to protect. But our God doesn't work according to our time for him. Sometimes God makes us wait and wait and wait and wait. And sometimes God takes into darkness so we press more into him but he reminds Abraham in verses 13 to 16 he knows exactly what's going to happen of course he does he's God but verse 17 is the key verse when the sun had set and darkness had fallen a smoking firepot with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces because God turns up the smoking firepot, the blazing torch is a, a picture of God's presence Exactly the same word is used when God appeared on Mount Sinai. The same word is used when God appeared at the burning bush with Moses. The same word is used when God leads his people by the fire by night and the cloud by day. The same word is used of the Shekinah glory of God's presence in the tabernacle and the temple because God turns up, a smoking fire pot with a blazing torch turns up, God appeared. Now this is the key verse, verse 17 And God passed between the pieces. Just God. God alone. God by himself walked through the pieces. Understand this, grasp this, it's incredible because in every human contract, both parties have to walk through. But Abraham never walked through. Abraham did nothing. It's God who walks through by himself. And on that day, verse 18, the Lord not made a contract, he made a a covenant. He made a covenant with Abraham, a covenant that cannot be broken. And God is shouting, I will keep my promise. I cannot break my promise. These promises are guaranteed to you, Abraham. And I hope you understand that. No matter what Abraham did or didn't do, God would keep his promise. No matter what Israel did or didn't do, God would keep his promise. No matter what we do or don't do, God will keep his promise. Because that is the gospel, isn't it? Remember centuries later, darkness came over the whole land again. Darkness was a symbol of God's anger, God's wrath on that first Good Friday Darkness came on the land, and Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And what he's saying there is, God, why is your anger being poured out on me when it should be poured out on Paul Dale, or Amy Smith, or Betsy Rogers, or whatever your name is, your anger should be poured onto you rather than Jesus Christ. And God did not walk through pieces of an animal sacrifice. God walked through the, the blooded, uh, broken body of his own son, Jesus Christ. And Jesus said, it is finished, it's complete, it is done. You are fully forgiven, fully saved, and that is guaranteed. That is the gospel. And every single one of God's promises find their yes in Jesus Christ. And we're told that Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. And that verse is picked up in... Romans 4, Galatians 3, James 2. It's the key verse that you are made right with God, not by what you do, but what God has done for you and what God has promised you and guaranteed you in the person of Jesus Christ. And if you're here tonight saying, well, how can I know? We just sung, I'm a child of God. Yes, I am, but how can I know I'm a child of God? Well, you know, because your salvation is not dependent on you. You're not co-contributors Bit of you, bit of God. God saw you. God chased you. God chose you. God paid for all your sins and God will keep you for glory. It's not down to you. How do I know, you say? Oh, I think the salvation one's easy to know. What's more difficult is the other promises of God's protection and God's provision and God's presence and God's comfort. How do you know that? I'll finish with this, Hebrews 6, verse 13, on the screen. When God, on the screen, when God made his promise to Abraham, since there was no one greater for him to swear by, he swore by himself, saying, I, God, will bless you, and I, God, will give you many descendants. So after waiting patiently, because God often makes us wait for years after years after years, Abraham received what was promised. And we have this hope as an anchor for our soul. So your anchor in life is not what you do or not how you look or not who your friends are because those things are just sinking sand. They are just like water that will never hold you firm. The anchor for your soul is that God has seen you and God has loved you in the person of Jesus Christ. He's called you his child and he's made you over 3,000 promises and every single one of them is yes in Jesus. How can you know? Stop having a pity party and look to Jesus. God says, it's not about you, it's all about me. And I hope you know that you are caught up in those Abrahamic promises. Because you, if you're a Christian, are part of a great nation. Not the nation of Israel, but the nation of God's people, God's church, God's chosen ones, God's family. And that you are heading to a great land, not the land of Canaan, but a land called heaven. An inheritance that can never perish, never fail, that's being kept in heaven for you. And that you are being blessed, not with prosperity and not with constant happiness, but you're being blessed with salvation and the Spirit and his presence and his protection and his peace. All those blessings And every single one of them is yes in the person of Jesus Christ. So I hope you know Jesus. Please don't go through life on your hands and knees, creeping and crawling, thinking, will God fail me? Will God be there? Stand. Stand confidently. Charge through life, believing, being fully persuaded that God never made a promise that was too good to be true. So let me pray. Father, we thank you that you are faithful to all your promises. We thank you, Father, that these are not empty words, but these are truths for us to hold on to. Help us, Lord, to stand in these promises, to boldly go through life believing them, living them, Each day of our life, may we trust that you are present, that you are good, that you are loving and kind. And thank you, Father, that every one of your promises does find its yes in our Savior, our friend, our master, our king, the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray.